Welcome to the Black Psychologist Podcast, where we have conversations and give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, we'll discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you living your best, healthy life. Thanks for listening. And enjoy the podcast. I'll be back in one second. And welcome, welcome, welcome back to Extravaganza, the world renowned, the Black Psychologist Podcast, episode 32. We are back for your listening and watching pleasures. I am one half of your humble and gracious host and clinician here for your listening pleasures. Dr. Kyle Osborne, once again, he is I and I am him. And of course, I'm never by myself. I'm here with the guy. He's the tower of power, too sweet to be sour. Sky's the limit and space is the place. My man, the one and only Dr. Jason Coleman. What's up, good brother? What's going on, brother? How are you? Hey, man, you know, another week, you know. How's that? How's everything on your end? Can't complain, man. Um, listen, I, I got some good. Well, I got some. It was a productive weekend. Got some work done. Um, saw some good movies. We're about to talk about one of them. Um, you know, just hanging out, man. Hanging out. Really good weekend. Cool, cool, man. Yeah, definitely. Sounds like you got some self-care in there, you know. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Do? Did you guys get a chance to get out, walk the dog? Yeah, 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 man. Yeah, Midnight's doing cool, man. Midnight got a, uh, she has a play date or she has like a a play person, like another dog and stuff. Um, So, you know, she, we're getting her out there. We become a little bit of a socialite, you know? (laughs) Yeah, so I'll I'll be honest. I'm not liking these getting up in the morning um, early walks, though. You know, it's getting a little, it's getting a little, little chippy, chilly out there. You know, not oh, like man, it's, gonna, it's gonna get worse. Man. You're gonna be yeah. out there in 40 degree weather in dress socks. Yeah, right. <laughs> the trouser socks. Gonna get worse, bro. <laughs> but yeah, um, other than that, man, yeah, self care also over the weekend. Try to chill. Um, so yeah, we definitely gonna get into it. Um, but as always, we want to thank everybody. For uh, watching, for listening, like you said, we're on episode thirty-two, so we appreciate everybody with the with the positive feedback, um, with the comments. Continue to subscribe, continue to share, um, and continue to you know to comment because we we love the feedback, you know. And as always, join us with the conversation, the Black Psychologist Podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you if you have any questions, any comments, any statements. We want to hear. Um, so yeah, we continue to enjoy and love the support. Anything else, Jay? Uh, no, just, you know, as, as usual, um, definitely, we definitely appreciate all the support, humbled by it. Um, we're going to continue with the content and just, you know, appreciative to anybody that takes time out of their week to listen. All day. All right, so let's get into it, man. You uh, you alluded to it earlier. Um, 
yeah, we we both got a chance to um, check out the movie "The Harder They Fall." It's on Netflix. It's a it's a black western theme movie. Um, I was really excited about it. You know, after I, um, when I checked it out late last week, I you know I texted you and um and Ashley about it. Like, ah, you gotta check this out. This movie's crazy. Um, and it, right. it absolutely was. So I'm happy that um we you know that it that it came out. And anybody who hasn't seen it, go check it out. It's a great movie. All star cast. Um. And one of the cast members, um, great actor, Lakeith Stanfield. So if you're not familiar with his work, um, he was in um, the series Atlanta. Um, he was in um, Get Out. He was in, um, what else was he in? He was in, um, oh, um, The Judas and the Messiah. Um, he was in that movie. Great actor, man. Great young actor. Um, and he recently opened up about experiencing mental health issues, especially during the filming of The Harder They Fall. So he was open and he experienced that he that he um, or he mentioned that he experienced crippling anxiety and drink every night after work while filming the Western theme movie. Um, so in the movie, Stanfield plays Cherokee Bill. Um, an outlaw and member of the Rufus Black Gang. That's a group that was made up of black and, and, and uh, Native American men who go on crime sprees. So um, I'm going to read you a, a, a bit from his, um, from his post. He posted on Instagram. He said, the worst part of filming of this movie was that I was in a pretty bad space mentally. I couldn't see what life had in store to teach me about myself and that what I needed to know. He said, there's a sadness in me if you look closely into the eyes of Cherokee. He said, every day on set, I was experiencing crippling anxiety and suffering silently inside. I would drink every night after work and try to laugh off my pain. The real Cherokee made me keep fighting as I thought that I had to keep fighting to fight, um, as I had to fight to survive. How the youth in Chicago have to fight every day to survive. Here's the fighting through the trauma to get to myself. Here's to almost six months sober. And here's to the fact that the bigger the goal God has for them, the taller they stand and the harder they fall. All right. So this isn't the first time that um, that Stanfield had mentioned or, or shared about his uh, his his experiences um, in mental health. In 2020, he had posted a series on Instagram, a post of like pictures of pills, like alcohol. And um, right. and he had like this caption underneath that said, I like to be myself because I can hurt myself and no one tells me to stop or fakes like they care. Now, after he had posted this, um, he did reassure fans that he was OK. And many of his uh, his co-workers and some of his friends went to check on him to make sure that, um, you know, that he was he was safe. Earlier this year, um, while filming um, the Judas in, in the Messiah, he uh, also spoke about experiencing panic attacks while he was filming that. And um, he talks about in that movie, he plays um, the the person, the character, I'm forgetting his name, that uh, conspired against um, Fred Hampton in the movie. And so he was the person that he was the um, the informant that, you know, was given the information to the feds. And this is what ultimately led to um, Hampton's assassination in real life, unfortunately. So um, and he said, you know, that role took a toll on him just because, you know, of everything that he immersed himself into that role that he felt like. I mean, he shared that in certain scenes, 
you know, it felt like he was actually, you know, being that character, right? Like he was mixing the poison and and giving that information, um, you know, and and so, you know, he said what was helpful for him was going to therapy to help unpack his anxiety and to help him get through these scenes. Then, you know, he was able to get the tools to help him overcome some of the situations like that. So um, just hearing and reading through this article, Jay, what was um, your thoughts about it? First, you know, it's an excellent movie. I think um, Jay-Z had a hand in producing mm-hmm. it. Um, all-star cast, um, definitely a well-written movie. Um, you know, and of, of, although obviously it was, you know, um, a fictional account, you know, it's an important movie, right? Because I, depending on how old the listeners are, a lot of people might not even been alive or aware of like the last one of the last black westerns like posse right when right. um, um i think marvin van peoples did that mario van peoples um yeah. father so you know um it's just important right because there were african-american black cowboys um and it just kind of showcases a different part of american history that we really don't talk about so it's a good movie check it out if you got a chance on netflix um what I kind of took from this article is just, you know, number one, obviously, anytime somebody, you know, chooses to kind of talk about their medical or mental health like challenges, you got to take your hat off to them for that. Um, but this is really about maladaptive coping. Right. Um, and a lot of people aren't really willing to talk as much about that. Um, and I think that's important. Right. Um, and again, uh, he his maladaptive kind of coping strategy was alcohol, you know, and he kind of talked about the alcohol, you know, it's been documented in terms of struggles with, you know, whether it be prescribed or unscribed prescription medication. Um, but I just think it's important, you know, as, you know, kind of like, hold on, my bad. My bad. Also, think it's important just um, you know, in in terms of maladaptive coping styles in in general, right? Because um, it, you know, alcohol isn't the only one that people use, right? right. Um, all right, there we go. I got I got my video back. So whether it's alcohol, whether it's smoking, you know, whether it's aggressive behavior towards your partner. You know, these are just maladaptive strategies that individuals use every day, right? Whether we're coping through grad school, whether we're coping with something in our relationship, financial stress or whatever. Um, So we got to give him credit for being willing to talk about a maladaptive coping strategy, you know, that affected him, you know, uh, negatively, right? So got to give him credit for that, definitely. Um, The other thing I kind of took from this, you know, was I don't think a lot of people really talk a lot about, you know, what these actors and actresses go through in preparing for these roles. Right. Um, And how that affects their mental health, you know, often negatively. Right. Trying to transform yourself into a character um, and absorb their pain so you can kind of transmit it or project it onto the screen. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've heard this over and over again. Right. Like. Like we talked about it earlier when we were talking about Andrea Day, right? Like on another um, on another episode, 
um, when she was kind of talking about playing Billie Holiday, I think, right? Yeah. Um, and we've heard this from actors and, and actresses alike. So I think that's one thing, you know, that we also, you know, kind of need to take account, um, take into account, you know, when we judge individuals who are in certain positions of power, or what we view as positions of power, right? Specifically like individuals who are rich and famous, right? Because there are a lot of other things, you know, that go along with these positions um, that I don't know that we necessarily always uh, value or kind of talk about. So those are the kind of the first two things I, I, I took from this, you know. No, I, I believe you're you're definitely on track with, with the acting aspect, and especially for the reason that, I feel like acting is one of those professions that people take for granted. Like the people, I think, think that it's an, an easier profession than like your nine to five. It's one of those professions that people just feel like, all right, well, you're going up there, you're you're reading from a script, you're um, you're getting on stage, you're you're you know you're performing in some manner, but it's not as taxing as you know someone else that's experiencing maybe in some other industry and, you know, acting can be extremely stressful. It's an extremely stressful profession. I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm an actor by any means. However, you have some of the best in the business that, you know, whether it's been Stanfield or it's been Denzel or it's been all of these other notable actors or actresses that, you know, they're the best in the business and they commit to their characters. You know, and it can be difficult to leave these characters behind if you're getting so immersed in what the character embodied, you know, just kind of thinking um, about his character in um, the Judas and the Black Messiah is that, you know, he played um, what's the guy's name? Um, William O'Neill. That was the name of the informant, the the person in real life. Um, And there is some similarities in that. Right. So considering how intense and how tragic the end came for the character himself, right? Um, William O'Neill, like he actually died by suicide in real life after everything took place. And he had done like his, there's this, there's this notable interview that he does like years and years after um, that he, that he, um, he participated in and like literally two or three days later, he, you know, committed suicide so you know for someone like stanfield to get so immersed in you know the emotions and what you know o'neill was going through um i mean i think people just again don't understand that you know your body and your mental state go through a tremendous transformation you know if you're getting you're taking on this role and that could be traumatic Right. It, it can be very it can cause a lot of serious trauma, depending on the role that you're embodying. Like we talked about Andrea Day and the Billie Holiday and the trauma that she experienced in her life. Like, you know, your body and your mental state still go through it, even though it's fake or it's, it's make believe or what have you. Like you're you're still going through it. Your body's still going through it. Yeah. And some of these people take on a whole physical transformation. So a lot of this can be a very traumatic experience for these actors. Well, that's the thing, like, fake is is subjective, right? Because, um, again, people understand social anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. But they would act like there's a disconnect between, you know, that 
in that in it, and that's so far away from some of these challenges that these actors and actresses are talking about. All right. Um, so I think that's kind of like I think that's where us putting celebrities up on pedestals and that separation because they're financially successful kind of just leads us to not have that empathy. Right. Because we would always be have anxiety for, you know, the person at the school play that forgets, you know, you know, the um, words to the to the um, national anthem. Right. Or a child that forgets their lines up there or an adult. Right. right. Um, but if it's, if it's an actor or actress, you know, then we don't have as much sympathy. Other thing I would want to draw people's attention to in this article specifically is when he was talking about the importance of kind of spending time around the horses. Right. Um, and again, like equestrian riding, like a lot of people do it, you know, for sport. A lot of people do it for recreation. But the value in terms of psychotherapy is underestimated, um, especially when we're talking about like uh, um, equine assisted psychotherapy um, is documented benefits in terms of lowering anxiety, depression, um, benefits in terms of spending time around the animals. Right. Yeah. Um, it's not. It's, it's more viewed as a supplement to therapy, of course. Um, but again, there are benefits in terms of emotional regulation, non-threat, having a non-threatening kind of uh, partner along the journey with you. And he kind of talked about the value of spending time with the horses to the point of, you know, he kind of had some challenges separating. Right. So I only bring that up in terms of just, again, whenever we can, just highlighting the importance of embracing alternative therapies or supplements to therapy that are important to the person or their culture. Yeah. And to, uh, to underscore that he talks about, you know, again, how beneficial it was working with those horses. And at the same time, it's like, he's using the resources around him to help him where also that you have to commend him for being vulnerable you know, and talking about it. And what I also appreciate is he was learning these experiences because he mentions that, you know, after Judas and, and the Black Messiah, he said, you know what, going forward, yeah, if I'm going to get immersed in these, these, these types of roles, you know, before stepping forward into something like that again, I need to have a therapist. And he talks about right. that at the end of the article, which I think is really crucial and really important for the reason that, not just actors, but so many people will go through and experience, you know, severe symptoms like panic attacks and being overwhelmed with stress and the insomnia and all these other different symptoms. However, it's like, well, you know what? I'm, you know, being an actor or being a musician is my coping strategy. It is my skill. It's something that brings me peace. It's something, but it's also the same thing depending on the role that's causing the stress and become, you know, contributing to you being overwhelmed. So I'm happy that he actually took a step out of the, you know, I love what I do. It, it's, it's peaceful for me. It helps me, but it's like, you know what, I need to step in and get professional help. And, you know, he talks about being six months sober. He talks about, you know, having a therapist and being able to learn these different tools and going through the process of that. So I want to commend him for that, for actually, you know, stepping outside of himself and saying, hey, you know what, let me try getting professional help. And then it appears, even though, and as we know, even if you have, you're, you're getting professional help, you're having these resources, anxiety still takes place. You know, it's situational, all the different circumstances. So I'm happy that at least along the way, he was still getting that professional help. So um, 
yeah, this is, uh, you know, I, I'm happy and this is, a, you know, a, a great strength and it also shows a lot of vulnerability on his part. So, um, yeah, I definitely appreciated the and happy the fact that he was, uh, you know, he was in a place to be comfortable to share this with us. Yep. And um, I guess the last thing I would say to wrap it up is just like anxiety doesn't discriminate. Right. So you can be an NFL you know, level player, basketball player and experience anxiety, or you could be an, you know, an Oscar winning actor, actress and still experiencing, you know, anxiety. Um, so it does not discriminate. So just leave it there. Exactly. All right. So moving on to the APA, the American Psychological Association. All right. So, Jay, the uh, APA recently issued an apology to people of color um, last week for its role in perpetuating systemic racism and discrimination in the U.S. All right. So uh, I'm read a couple quotes here. It says for the first time, the APA and American psychology um, are systematically and intentionally examining, acknowledging, and charting a path forward to address their roles in perpetuating racism. All right. It says the uh, governing body within the APA should have apologized to people of color before today. It said the work done to make this apology to people of color a reality was led by the people and voices of broad cross-section and today's APA members, APA elected officials, and appointed leaders. All right. So it says the APA was established by white male leadership, many of whom contributed to scientific inquiry and methods that perpetuated systemic racial oppression and included promoting the ideas of early 20th century eugenics. All right. So the American Psychological Association is seeking to make amends for the past wrongdoings. What say you, Jay? Oh, well, this is, listen, this is a, a big subject and it's a big question, right? So um, are you asking me if they deserve some credit for acknowledging facts? I mean, we... I mean, yeah, I mean, you, can, you can throw that in there, but we'll, we'll, when you saw the apology come through, what, what, what were your thoughts? I mean, yeah, we can get I mean, into listen, do they deserve it, but we, what were your initial, you know, thoughts when I mean, listen, you saw this come through? It's a big, it's a big question because the APA is one one of many institutions, you know, that have historically, you know, kind of misrepresented statistics, you know, um, decorated professionals in the field or whatever um, to kind of promote racist policy policies and paint you know, different groups of people as inferior. So I felt, you know, honestly, I experienced a little bit of dissonance, right? Because I was, as a Black psychologist, right? Um, I think it's a small step in gaining a large portion of credibility back, all right? So mm -hmm. that's the first thing I could say, right? Um, listen, early in my career, I, I said it when we did the, the presentation about racial justice. One of my professors uh, gave me a book or recommended Robert Guthrie, Even the Rat Was White, okay? Historical viewpoint of how psychology was used to, legitim um, to legitimize oppression of African-Americans and promote the idea of black inferiority. So I've always known being, being a black man, being a psychist history of it, 
You, you understand? Um, so that's real. Um, so it's, I mean, they talk in detailing the chronological history, you know, of kind of racist practices. Um, and they, and they kind of committed to trying to dismantle racism. That I think is important because as psychologists, I think we're in a unique position, right? On an educational level, community level, and when it comes to healthcare. Um, but with that being said, it's a small step. Mm -hmm. so what did you think? Um, so I'm honestly like I'm I'm happy they're acknowledging it. However, it's long, long overdue. You know, like I'm I'm proud to be a psychologist. I, I take pride in facilitating growth and helping others as well as, you know, I will rep, you know, mental health you know, the mental health field and defend them to no end. However, there's a dark side of history of psychology. It's just, just plain and simple. And, um, and the APA can't continue to avoid it. You know, they just can't. I mean, there's, there's a pretty extensive timeline of psychologists in the past that promoted and used their privilege and they used their influence um, to promote white supremacy, to racism. Um, and they, they highlighted it as like race betterment through, you know, these eugenic policies. Um, so, you know, I always looked at it when, especially when, you know, last year when, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement came to the forefront and, and other different protests and things of that nature that, you know, the APA put out, you know, these these press releases and these statements and these endeavors like, oh, we're dismantle racism and so on and so forth, which was good. However, it was also, you know, I'm looking at it like, well, you know, psychology can't continue to attempt to disarm and dismantle racism without you first addressing your own history of racism and your own transgressions. So, you know, that was kind of my my thought process where I'm happy. OK, yeah, you're acknowledging now. But like when when they, when they would put these, you know, these statements out prior to this, it was like, well, what are you doing to, you know, to clean out your own closet? Like, what are you doing? You got to look in the mirror first and foremost before you start saying, you know, those and putting out those right statements of like, oh, we, we need our clinicians. We're focused on this. But I'm like, yo, this you've also participated in these things. So um, so I'm on like, like, I'm happy that they're acknowledging it. And it it sounds like some of the endeavors that, you know, that they're, um, you know, that they're they're going to put forth are going to be helpful. But that was just kind of my initial, you know, when I saw the apology and it's just like, you know, all right. I mean, I, I hope that no one was surprised by this because um, I wasn't. But, you know, because, again, we've we've known, you know, we know the history of it. Like, I'm not going to sit here and be like, OK, well, we got into a field that we didn't know had this history. Now, as we learn more and more about it, you know, through speaking to some professors and reading some of the books, like you mentioned, how deep and extensive it got. And it's pretty deep, it's pretty significant. Um, but, you know, it's um, it, it's good that they're acknowledging it, but it's, it's overdue. But and that's why when I started answering this question, I said it depends on where you want to start. Right. Because 
we're talking about like stru- like structural kind of r- like racism, right? So do you want to do we want to talk about schooling? Do we want to talk about housing? Do we you know do we want to talk about the medical system? Do we want to or do we want to get to mental health, right? So whether you want to start with you know Sir Francis Galton, you know, and eugenics and that kind of promoting white superiority. Mm -hmm. Um, or the 1900s, you know, when they were using IQ tests, you know, to kind of determine um, individuals as unfit, you know, and sterilize them, you know, go back, review Buck versus Bell, 65,000 people sterilized. Um, Princeton educated psychologist Carl Brighton, 1922, a study of American intelligence book published in this country, blaming immigration, um, you know, and ra- racial integration for the decline of the American IQ, right? So this is why people don't trust mental health. This is why people don't trust us. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is the history, right? And that's just dipping your toe in the water, right? And then you and then you come present day and, you, and we have the documented, documented discrepancies when it comes to African-Americans being diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, or ADHD in, in, you know, in the school setting, right? So that's the bow we wrap on it in 2021. So that, that this is why people come in my office, in your office, and they say, listen, I love you, doc. I'm glad you're here, but I don't, I don't agree with, I don't believe shit you say, right? Because we have a history of systematic racism that has been promoted and covered up by people that we're supposed to trust, right? Um, you know, and then you have people out here arguing, you know, that they shouldn't teach critical race theory in schools, right? So, man, let me ask you so this. I'm gonna leave it right there. Let me, I'm gonna let me leave ask it you right I, there, but I, I do, I do want to ask you one question, though, right? Do you think that this would have came out hadn't the, the the movements taken place last year and what's happening? So, things come. You mean the statement? Yeah. Do you think the apology, the statement, the oh, recognition? No. Yeah. And so, you know, that's where it's like, all right, I no. get it. But, you know, it's like, would this have happened if those events didn't take place? I'm I'm a, I'm no. subscribing. I believe that it wouldn't have. I don't. Not to say it is not well, genuine. I mean, it's good, you know, to get the history out. But I don't think this is what it this was prompted. Right. Yeah, I mean. Listen, George, the, je- the death of George Floyd was a catalyst for a lot of things, um, but I think it held a mirror up to a lot of things, you know, in this country. Right. And when we talk about psychiatrist Floyd murdered through, right, because, um, again, you can look at the bystander effect. Right. And I mean, it's complicated because they because, you know, police officers were there with guns and blah, 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 blah. But. You know, how do hundreds of people watch somebody get, you know, murdered for nine minutes, right? You know, there's factors that that contribute to that, to what how groups can watch somebody be murdered, right? Um, and again, you know, obviously it's not it's not that cut and dry, but there's a reason why you see, you know, um, residual impact, whether it be from the helplessness people feel from having observed that or you know, anxiety and depression from observing somebody murdered and, you know, intrusive thoughts or whatever might come from that. Right. But the only reason why I I bring it up is, you know, it held a mirror up to a lot of people. It was a day of reckoning for a lot of people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Because again, you know, the day after that, it's like for some of us, you know, you know, George Floyd might have might as well have been our brother because we we felt that broken. Um, and then for, for others, it wasn't our responsibility, right? So again, it's it's important because all of these historical events, right, when we're using research in the wrong way to paint people as unfit and less than and animals and you know, these are these are the foundation. Um, these are the foundational events and things that, you know, get us to where we're at now. Right. Where we can view somebody as less than a human. Right. It was systematic. It wasn't something that just happened overnight. And that, I think that's the problem when we start talking and having conversations about systematic racism. Right. Because you have individuals who have the privilege at this point and because it doesn't make them feel good. And they can legitimately say, well, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything. They want to forget about it. Right. But all of these things are the reasons why we have problems getting people of color to walk into, you know, a hospital right. or, or, or to, to return to a therapy session. So it's important that we teach critical race theory. It's important that we talk about these issues. Um, and, you know, you can't just say, well, I, you know, I, I didn't do it. I'm a psychologist and I'm not racist. So let's move on. I smile at all my clients and give them snacks. Yeah. And I work in the city. It just doesn't, it, you know, it's just not enough. So, you know, uh, but these are the, I mean, it sounds funny, but these are the attitudes people really have, right. When you start really having conversations about, you know, um, uh, uh, about racism and prejudice and, and, and the impact, right. Especially in our area. Right. So, you know, ongoing conversation. Absolutely. So I, I, I'll end it on, on this is that I agree. It's a small step in the right direction because the damage has been done, right? The damage has been, is great. You just listed many, many, you know, examples of how great and how deep that this goes. Um, I will say that this is significant for the reason that I believe that this, that this does represent hope. Like as for people of color, like we've made a great deal of progress in this field, like you and I and others that have become psychologists and, you know, we've made it this far and made this progress despite that systemic racism and other barriers that were put in front of us. And so, you know, when I see this, this apology, you know, it's like, okay, if they're going to truly incorporate all these endeavors that they, they said that, that they intend to or that they stated that they're going to make. All right. Well, I hope that this apology kind of signals that we are getting closer to that reaching what mental health system is supposed to be, like you said, hopefully. But again, like you said, it's to be monitored. We'll see. Right. Um, we'll, we'll see where this goes. But if, if it goes where it's supposed to, we're getting closer to what mental health is supposed to be of having people that look like us come in and actually trust us and trust the system even more because they might trust us, but they might not trust the system. And that's where the issue is. So we'll see, like you said. I mean, one re one more reason why, and I'll make it quick, why I think this is important is I think Trayvon Martin was murdered in 2013 and 2014. It might've been 2000. It was, it was, around, it was around there. Right. And what I, and the reason why statements like this are important is because and, and I feel bad at saying this, right? But it gives, and, and, and it's shameful that I even have to say this, right? But it gives some of these conservative 
schools and these conservative programs. It gives them, a, a, for lack of a better term, a push and cover to actually deal with issues that are going on, right? Because, you know, on a personal level, like I, I watched not only our, you know, alma mater, but a lot of different schools struggle with how to deal with those issues, right? Mm-hmm. And what I mean is struggle with how to deal with it is, you know, um, for weeks and weeks, there was just no response, right? And if, if, and for me, I would think that if you are a psychology teacher on a high school level, if you're a psychology teacher in a college level, if you definitely, if you're in a doctoral program, these are the most important issues that are in the world. You understand what I'm saying? So for me to come to class and learn whatever is going on in, in the book for that week, it, I was very frustrated. You know what I mean? But as a student, you're very powerless, you know? Um, and I'm gonna be very honest. Like I, I went to faculty with my frustration and I was told that it would be better brought up if it, by a student issue, right? As a student issue, right? So what that said to me as a student was that faculties had, this, had the same fear as me. Faculty of color had the same fear as me that if they would bring up, well, what are we doing? Why aren't we having these conversations about black males being shot in the back? Because they were concerned. Mm-hmm. They, they shared my concern, but they said it would be better if you bring it up, right? So when that happens, you know, that's a big problem. It is. It's a big problem, man. So, so the reason why I said the APA provides them cover, right, is because it may be cowardly, but at least you can look at that and say, well, now we have the freedom to talk about some of these issues without making somebody feel uncomfortable or disturbing them, right? Because when those issues finally were addressed on our campus, it was a student-led thing. I was there. I was involved. You know what I mean? It was a student-led thing. It wasn't led by me, you know, but it was medical students that said, we got to do something. With Black medical students, we're in a third, fourth year. You know, we can't just be sitting here learning in, in the library and people is just getting shot in the back all over. We got to have something to say. And we had a vigil and, we, and you know, we, you know, people would, would, would spoke and it was a nice event, right? But if we would have waited for the school to leave, it would have never happened. Yeah. No, it's definitely- so I only say that to say, like, I only say that to say, I know they were dealing with those issues immediately on Howard's campus right? Morehouse campus, Cheney's campus. You know they were dealing with those issues, right? I can confidently say that, you know? Somebody was having a discussion, having a rally, uh, you know, um, um, I'm calling a meeting to, to, to either, either allow people to express their feelings or talk about an action plan, you know? But in some of these, you know, places of higher education where you, where you would think that those conversations would be going on, they weren't. No, it's definitely indicative of a, of a larger issue. And we'll see, you know, we'll see where the APA, um, you know, they have these these goals and these endeavors and these these things that they're going to be putting in place. But let's see if they follow up. So uh, something we'll continue to monitor. All right. So we talked a little bit about anxiety earlier in the uh, in the episode. And uh, there have been some, you know, some new waves type of, uh, you know, strategies that people have been utilizing. So when it comes to managing anxiety, 
right? There have been a lot of options out there. We have uh, meditation. We got uh, we have therapy. We have uh, medication, you know, of course, being prescribed under the guidance of a, of a physician. Um, and some other methods have come to the forefront. So there's a couple of them. So one is anxiety rings. All right. So for those people that aren't familiar what anxiety rings are, uh, it may sound high tech, but it's really not. Um, you know, they're like these delicate kind of rings that come with tiny beads in the form of like uh, multiple bands that spin on your finger. And uh, they're sometimes known as spinning rings or they're worry rings. Um, but the anxiety rings, they have like movable balls on them. And when, you've, when you're feeling or you're experiencing anxiety or stress, um, you can like fidget with them or move them accordingly. Um, and, you know, they have different styles. And so, you know, it um, helps focus, recenter and alleviate the anxiety. All right. Um, and they have like different types. Um, they have different sizes. So they have some rings that are made, made with like beads for fidgeting. Um, if beads aren't your thing, then, you know, you can have like a roller ring. You know, you can go that route. And if you're trying to go for like more of a, a bulky type of look, you can. Um, they have like these four piece anxiety ring sets that have like a heavier spinner ring. So you got anxiety rings. You also have um, have slime. Cause slime has become a trending, you know, social on social media and people play with it as a way to alleviate stress and anxiety. All right. So slime isn't new, apparently. Um, slime, it's been like really due to like TikTok and other different social media forms. It's become pretty popular. I was doing some research and it says that over 29.4 billion TikTok views under the slime hashtag and another 25 billion on YouTube. And it says as a result, people have banded together to create full-fledged slime communities to use these colorful, squishy, um, you know, devices that uh, they can use to assist for a new tool for their mental health. Ryan Joseph, who is a slime content creator, said, as you watch slime videos, you become more relaxed and a lot of stress is released through the satisfying auditory sounds. And slime serves as a calming message as it aids many people in coping with stresses in their life, even if you're only watching it for a 60 second video. How about that, Jay? What, uh, what, do, you, what do you think about it? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess I'll start with the rings. Um, this is the first time I really heard about it. I was looking. Um, listen, man, they, they have something for you to buy, you know, for every ailment nowadays. Um, yeah. And it's between 10 to 30 dollars. You can get different ones, man. 10 to 30 bucks. 10 um, to 30 bucks, man. Amazon, hey, listen, Etsy, all that stuff. I mean, really, do I think they could work? Yes. Uh, I'm not saying that based on research that I've read because I haven't. I'm saying that based off how they were kind of describing using it um, and they were kind of describing using it like similar to like a stress ball or a fidget cube. Yeah. Um, and then in the, in the manner that they were talking about using it is it, it kind of fits into the box of like grounding. So it's kind of like a grounding tool um, to help you kind of clear your mind and stay grounded in the present moment. Um, if you feel yourself being distracted, you kind of play with the ring and, you know, Mm -hmm. um so i think from that standpoint it could be beneficial um 
also, I think people have to understand the distinction, like the same way we were kind of talking about the equestrian riding. Um, this is a preventative kind of measure, right? And a supplement, right? So this is something that you might see a young adult or, or an older adult use like in class or in a meeting, right? When they start to feel anxious and they're trying to kind of get through the last 15, 20 minutes of the meeting, or you got a, a speech to make, and you don't want to kind of tap your feet or sweat. So you're kind of playing with the ring. Um, I can see it in that sense, you know, being a good kind of assistive tool in terms of helping individuals kind of like calm and center themselves in a the moment. Um, with that being said, it's not a substitution for therapy or um, prescribed uh, medication at all. So in terms of the slime, um, Again, you got to note before you say, you know, they kind of noted in the article, there's not any peer reviewed studies to kind of back up what people are saying. So this is anecdotal kind of stuff. Um, but again, they're talking about coping, using it to cope with feelings of stress and anxiety. Right. So it makes sense. It's kind of analogous to like kinetic sand um, in terms of engaging your senses. Right. Um they talked a lot about poking, squishing, right? Um, and listening to the sounds and all of those things. We were talking about looking at the different colors. I didn't even factor that in. Um, so when you say that, it kind of brings me to, um, and again, I'm just making loose associations just based off, you know, what, I, what I'm thinking, my opinion. It kind of brings me to like a mindfulness element in terms of like looking at like waves, right? Things like that. Um, and how that can have a common effect on people. Um, so again, to each his own, um, you're gonna have some people who um, the, the bright colors and all and all of those things, you know, they might be overstimulated by it. So it may increase the anxiety, um, but obviously for those thousands of people that are watching, it's giving them a calming effect, right? So I'm one of those people where if it's, if it's not gonna hurt you, um, I think mo a lot of things can be used as a supplement. Um, to therapy, um, but again, a supplement, you know. Yeah, when I was did you go? Um, did you buy your anxiety rings or your, or your slime yet? I'm gonna get some. I'm gonna get some. I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, right. gonna, I'm gonna do the pinky ring part. That's what I'm doing, <laughs> you know, because if you're gonna do it, you might as well look good while you're doing it. Um, All right, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get a four, four finger ring. Yeah, yeah, you go. That now you think it, yeah, I mean, um. <laughs> My 80s yeah, I, baby. I, you know, yeah, when, my 80s baby. <laughs> when it, when it, um, reading about this and looking at like some of the videos and, and some of the pictures that they provided, um, yeah, the first thing that that thought into, um, that popped in my head was like, like you mentioned, a fidget toy or like a stress ball. Um, and it seems like, um, like the anxiety ring, it seems like it's a, like a blend of both the releases and like the grounding element of, of like stress relief. Right. And like it, it can bring like some some help to being in a, you know, or, or gaining like a being a good headspace or like that sense of emotional regulation. Um, Yeah, I would like to see some research. I would like to see some peer reviewed articles. So hopefully maybe that'll be coming down the pike in, in the near future. Um, You know, it, it absolutely seems like it's a, a good distraction tool. Um, And same thing with the slime, like the sensory. Right. Um, like you said, the, the feeling, the, the smell, the vision um, aspect of it. And, yeah, I share the same concerns. I'm just hoping that, um, you know, this is short term relief. That's what this is. It's like similar to a stress ball. Um, 
you know, it shouldn't be relied upon like, you know, as full fledged treatment or like a cure. And I feel like that I don't want people, especially when things start to get on TikTok, to get on different social media outlets or platform that people look to that as like, that's going to cure your anxiety. Um, And that's not the case, right? It's a coping strategy rather than a cure. Um, And if you are experiencing, you know, severe anxiety, um, you know, I'm worried that this will just become will fall into that thing where it's like a safety seeking behavior. Right. And and that'll be like just a one off. And that's, you know, it's not going to tackle the root cause of the anxiety, you know, so um, absolutely use it if it's helpful, like you mentioned. However, it's just like you said, it's not a substitute for treating anxiety, which, you know, we know takes, you know, it takes time. It takes time, um, takes, you know, the mental and emotional development to work and alleviate on what's causing, you know, the stress and the anxiety. So um, but, you know, it's creativity. It's good to see how things are evolving, you know, how these strategies are going to be working for different people that have different strengths and different um, things that will work for them. You know, so we'll see. So I'm hoping that some research comes out, you know, they can get backed and, you know, some more, you know, empirical data can go. But um, yeah, man, I got you. You want that slime for Christmas? I got you, bro. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> yeah, man. I'll All right. So it. it's football season, Jay. All right. And uh, not only college football, not only NFL football, we got high school football. And you know, in certain areas of the country, high school football is like religion. All right. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this past Friday, Inglewood High School defeated Inglewood Morningside High School, which they're both located in, in California, so hopefully it doesn't get too confusing. But Inglewood High defeated Inglewood Morningside in a high school football game by a score of 106 to 0. That's right. 106 to 0. So after leading Morningside High by 59 to 0 at the end of the first quarter, right? Not the first half, the first quarter, Jack. All right. Inglewood High kept scoring throughout the rest of the game. They even attempted a two-point uh, a two-point conversion instead of like the regular field goal when they were up 104 to zero. All right. So um, at the end of the game, the coach of the Morningside football team uh, called the blowout a classless move. He said, and the um, the Inglewood Unified School District, which oversees both high schools, said that it was saddened beyond words by the events and promised a full investigation. Like, this started to gain, like, national, like, media, right, hype. Like, Dick Vitale, you know, the, the college, the famous college basketball commentator, um, calls for discipline into the Inglewood coaching staff. All right, so um, what's what's your um, your take on all of this? Like, have we, as a society, have we uh, have we lost decency, or, or, or where are we at? I mean, I'm not, we're just polarized, man. I mean, I'm not going to go too hard on this. Um, was it classless? Yes. Okay. Um, listen, I'm not by any means, I'm not the participation trophy guy, right? So I'm not the guy like, yeah, you go out there and you get, you lose 40 to nothing. Everybody gets a, the same certificate at a certain age. Yes. If we're talking about, you know, five-year-olds, four-year-olds, even six-year-olds, fine. 
But when we get to a certain level, children have to be able to to deal with losing, winning and losing as part of, you know, competition, games, life, everything else. Um, this is not that, right? This is excessive, right? So I got mixed feelings towards it because um, I kind of feel like on a high school level, I kind of feel like administratively, right, there should be some sort of policy where once the score gets to a certain point, they either stop keeping score, you know, um, or, or you know, the, a winner gets called and it's just an exhibition. You know, you know what I mean? So um, you, you want a mercy rule? I mean, listen, because otherwise it's college, right? Otherwise in, in, in college, like step on your neck. If it's 90 to four, stop them, right? But when we're talking about um, high school sports, I'm sure that when they're going around the country trying to get money for their program or donors or even within their own town, they're talking about the spirit of competition, promoting self-esteem, building uh, self-confidence, the team spirit, all of those things, right? Um, And all of that gets lost when you're up, you know, 106 to zero. You know what I mean? Um, again, some people may not agree with me. I, I, a lot of people may not agree with me, but I just think, you know, do you do you allow them to to, to play out the game? You know, yes, but I but there's a there's a humiliation element of it, right? So um, I just think after a certain time, you either call a game because because of, of time, um, or you or you call it because of the score, or you or you just stop you know, stop counting the score. But at some point, you know, the game needs to be called. And I, that's that's really all I'll say about that. What you think? This reminds me, man, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to age myself. So in, in 2004, uh, I was like a, I was like a, a well, sophomore, sophomore, junior in um, at Cheney. Right. And uh, bro, we we played uh, Western Illinois. We got blown out 98 to seven. Yeah. 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 Right. So here, here's the thing. I'm, I'm kind of along the lines of I'm not a participation trophy type of person. Um, was it classless? I, I feel like more content needs to be added for the reason that um, I feel like it's classless if you leave your starters in. OK, if you leave your starters in and, and, and mind you, it wasn't like these like. These they're both playing in the same district, to what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was reading um, a couple of the articles, and it looks like the team that did the blowing out what was that um, uh, the threatened who was it Hillside Morning Morning California, right? Or no, uh, Inglewood High. Like two or three years ago, they were on the receiving end of, of a lot of blowouts, right? Like two or three years ago, they got a new coach, recruitment, and all these other different things. So these teams, I don't want to say they were evenly matched, but they're in the same district. So it's not yeah. like you have one team is like Alabama and you got the other team is like, you know, some other peewee team and they're just getting, you know, just demolished out there. So they're both, like you said, mm-hmm. high school teams. They're in the same district. Um, obviously, one team is more talented than the other. So I feel like it's it, I believe it's classes if you leave like your starters in. Like if your starters are are like, you know, they're just moving, they're just doing whatever they want to, and you leave them in, then I feel like that's classless. But if you have the second, 
third, fourth string guys in there and they're still scoring because I look at it like as a coach, we have to look at it, you know, also from the perspective of the coach that's winning. How do you tell your second or third string or your fourth string like players don't run the ball? Just go out there and take a knee. Right. Mm -hmm. This is their opportunity to play, too. They've been waiting to get some shine. They've been waiting to get in the game. This is the opportunity. So they're going to go out there and play hard. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I don't know if you're a coach and, you know, um, I don't know if you're able to tell your team. Like, again, these are the guys coming off the bench to say, hey, go at half speed when you go out there. So that's kind of the aspect Mm -hmm. or kind of the the perspective I wanted to keep in mind or take in consideration. Um, yeah, does this, did, did the score get out of hand? It did. I'm also someone who's, you know, been on the other end and this may seem kind of anecdotal, but I've also been on the other end of, a in basketball or on football where I've been on the receiving end of a blowout and it's not fun. And at the same time, if I don't want that to happen, then me and my teammates need to do something to keep that from happening. Right. We need to I mean, keep listen, people I- out the end zone. So, I, and I, I, I know it's not that easy, I, but, you know, yeah. I mean, I understand that. Like, again, when we're talking about college students, I agree with you, right? But we're talking about, like, children. So, I mean, I, it's a reason. It's, like, I, I, I'm going to be very honest, like, because what's the cutoff age, right? It's a reason why they don't they usually don't give too many Fs out in elementary school, right? Because Because – the lesson will get lost. You're, you know what I mean? Because what I can guarantee you is that I don't care where high school, what high school it is, 80% of those kids, 90% of them, 95% of them are not going to the NFL. They're right. not, right? 90% of them, well, 80% of them are, are probably not even going to play, play in high school. I mean, play in college, right? So if they're not going to the NFL, and this is just how I, I look. And they're not going to play, you know, most likely we're talking about not possible, but probable, right? That this little town, unless they're the best town in the, in the United States, majority of them are not going to NFL, majority of them are not going to D1 schools. So then what's the point, right? The point is for the kids to get a workout, to have fun, to build camaraderie, to build their self-esteem. So again, it, it becomes, I think when the reason why I think you have somebody like Dick, what was it, Dick Vitale? Yeah. Saying that they want an investigation is because think about it, somebody at that high of a level is looking. The reason why I think he's saying that is because you can look at that situation and you say, it's not a, at all about the kids. It could be about a coach that's trying to get another job. You understand? What I'm so that's why my perspective is like, I get it, like, but. Alabama, you know, if they get blown out 106 to, to five, then it's like, okay, you go back there and you look at Nick Saban and you say, men, we got to reevaluate how we prepared today. Yeah. But 14 year olds, I hear you. I've, and I've been blown out. You know, I've been a part of those blown out yeah, blowouts. It's, like, it's, it's not fun. Columbia. <laughs> Randolph used to come to town and blow us out by 60. You know what I'm saying? But, but again, I just I'm just talking in terms of the spirit. I'm not taking it to the degree of saying that there's some long lasting, you know, um, impact in terms of, you know, right. um, they're going to develop psychological issues. It would just if I was 
the parent in the, in, in the stands of the winning team, it will leave a bad taste in my mouth. You know what I'm saying? Because I just don't see the point. You're, it, you know what I'm saying? It's just like when we see, well, not, it's just like back in the day or whatever, if you, if two people, you know, have a fist fight, you know, at some point you, somebody going to be like, well, he had enough. Yeah. He had enough. He got out there, you know, he, yeah, he, you know, he yeah. gave, you know, but he had enough, you know, so that's my logic, but not saying I don't see your point, right? Because if you were a, a coach that's training kids for the next level, you don't want to hear nothing I just said. Right. Or even if, like, if, you know, if, like, like a lot of these know. blowouts are outliers, right? Like how often do you see something like this bad? Right. So this is just like an extreme. This is like an extreme outlier. Right. You know, again, there are parents on both sides. So you have the parents that are on the side that are, their kids are getting like just just trashed and just getting just walked all over the field. And then you have the other parents, you know, again, that have kids that typically maybe don't get in the game because maybe the other games are close. Right. So you never see like these kids get in. And so as you're seeing an opportunity, like, yeah, you know what? As a parent, you want to see your kid go out there and play as hard. And unfortunately, someone has to win. Someone has to lose. Now, there's typically, you know, a manner in which people, you know, lose and and, and win. Um, I mean, it's tough. You know, I, I do feel like, you know, if, if you are going to have a situation like in high school, then there should be a cutoff, like you're saying. Um, and it sucks. Like I've been on the receiving end of, yeah, you know, of just, it, it's a long day. It's a terrible feeling. Um, and at the same time, it's like, all right, well, like you said, I don't, I don't, I'm not too concerned about, like you said, the lasting effects and it, it being like traumatizing. And now you just don't want to play football anymore. However, it is a situation where it's like, it, it's, you know, there's a way to go about it. And if, you know, I feel like if the district is worried or concerned about things like this happening, like if this is happening frequently, then yeah, you should put in a cutoff um, or a mercy rule or, or something rather. Um, I just find it like it's tough to have. Um, and I, I, I completely understand what you're saying. Um, at the same time, it's also tough to tell kids maybe who aren't like or that are the bench players to not go out there and, and play. I mean, it's a good listen. It's a good point. I don't have no rebuttal to that. So. It's just I'm just talking about like decision I, I would have made. You know, it's not law. It's not. It's like I can't even say that I feel that, you know, that I'm completely right in that situation. Like I said, I would have only made that decision because it would have it would have left a bad taste in my mouth. But again, I see the other side, too. You know, I can see the other side. I tell you what, you know, if you're on the losing end of that, I mean, you you get to see the kids who uh, who have heart that are still out there playing hard despite what's happening. Man, get out of here, man. <laughs> you're down 100 to zero. They out there picking grass. Knock it off. They out they are, they wait they out there waiting to waiting to go to Red Lobster, man. Yeah, <laughs> no, you ain't go to Red Lobster after a loss like that, bro. Right. <laughs> ain't no Red Lobster tonight. So no we're going to, we're no going Red to Lobster, no, no Pizza Hut, no nothing. Going to Wawa, get you one of them sandwiches. If that, you make your own damn sandwich. Right. So. <laughs> all right, Jay, man. That's um, that's all I got. Uh, anything else before we get out of here, good bro? No, not not really, bro, man. Um, you know, just a, a, of course, we want to thank everybody that takes time to listen. Um, and you know, we're gonna be back with some more content next week. Absolutely. So continue to watch, continue to listen, subscribe, like, comment. Um, 
And uh, we wish everybody good mental health. Jay, until next week, I'll see you, good bro. All right, my brother. Later. All right.